Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and share your word. We ask you to bless it, guide us, lead us in what you'd want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't take hearing myself on the speakers when I'm preaching. <laughs> hey, Luke, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Irania, and the re in the region of Tacconitis and Lysanias, and the tetrarch of Abilene, Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of the God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country of Judea, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and be, and begin, and begin not by saying within yourself, begin not by saying within yourself, we have Abraham to be our father. For I say unto you, that God is able to, to of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And now also the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every, every tree, therefore, which brings not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said unto them, He that has two cloaks, let him impart to him that hath none, and to him that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came the publicans to be baptized, and he said unto them, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which you is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Just look at this because some people will look at this section and say that John the Baptist was teaching a works, works salvation. So we want to look a little closer at this because that's not what he's teaching uh, in, in this. But we're going to look at the first part where he starts telling us about Pontius Pilate and, and Herod and Philip. And, you know, you go, well, why did in in this information? Well, Luke was writing this as a history, we told you, as a testimony of what has happened. And he puts enough details in it that we know exactly what time period that he's talking about. Uh, and he's going to say that in the 15th year of Tiberius, Paul, uh, John the Baptist starts preaching. Now, this is kind of interesting because we can look at this and say that, well, the 15th year of Tiberius was either 26 AD or 29 AD, depending on when you count his starting of his rule. Because he ran for three years as a co-regent. <laughs> so we don't know if we're talking about 29 AD or 26 AD. I'm pretty sure it's 29 AD, but, uh, but we don't know for sure because it depends on what, when you count his starting <laughs> of his reign. So, but at any way, we do know these guys ruled at very specific points. And we know exactly when they start and when they end. And so we, he's putting in this time frame, this is when we're talking about. We are talking about three decades into AD. And so we're, we're wanting to be able to, to examine this. And he says, Caiaphas and Ananias are the high priest. 
Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that there's one high priest at any one time. And so we look at this and go, well, what happened here? Well, this is all of Rome's input. Ananias is actually the high priest that the Jews recognize. And his son, Caiaphas, is the high priest that the Romans recognize. And they, the Romans put Caiaphas in power and took Ananias, probably because Ananias was not speaking the things that they wanted to hear. He was talking about Jewish freedom and all these things, and he was not playing the political games with them, and, and so they put Caiaphas in. But it says that John went preaching in the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance and remission of sin. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. We know that the Jordan River runs from the... From the Sea of Galilee in the north, which is way up near where Jesus and Mary, uh, Jesus lives, all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is a lot closer to Jerusalem, which is where John the Baptist lives. So we go, well, where did he live? Or where was he preaching? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter, where's my mark here? I wrote down, where did I write? Anyway, in Matthew, it tells us that he was in the Judean area which means that he was only 15 or 17 miles from Jerusalem, depending on what part of Judea and the, and the Jordan that he was preaching at. So we know that he is preaching really far down. And when Jesus comes to be baptized by, by John the Baptist, he's having to make a 50 to 70 mile trip to be baptized. Now, we kind of think about that, well, 50 or, 50 or 70 miles, what, what's the big deal? People like myself, I put that much on in one day. Uh, you know, many of us, especially living out here in chloride, if you want to go to town and come back, you're putting a 60-mile, you know, 60-mile round trip to go to town and, and back. Uh, so we think, what's the big deal? Well, back then, a long trip uh, on any one day was about 20 miles. So he was traveling for two to three days to go down to be baptized. And so we see here a big deal that's going to be developed on here. And what does it say? John was out there in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That there'll be one in the wilderness as the forerunner of the Messiah. The people have been looking for the Messiah for, for millennia at that time. And they're going to overlook Jesus because he did not do what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Uh, they did not look at things like Isaiah 53 where it says that the Messiah was going to suffer and pay for the penalties of the sin. They did not look at many of the other verses that said that he was going to die and resurrect. They were looking for one thing and one thing only. They were looking for the hero of the nation that was going to come and rescue them and make their nation the number one. They're in bondage to Rome. They were looking for a, a warrior king to come in and say, Rome is no longer here and we're going to be the capital of the world. That's yet to happen. That will be the millennial kingdom after the revolution after the tribulation period, that Jesus will come and be their warrior king. He will defeat the enemy that is coming against Israel and have a thousand-year reign of peace, where Israel will be the center of all worship and government, and he will fulfill what they were looking for. At this point, he's coming as the lamb. Now, and this is very interesting that we as Christians still think of Jesus as the lamb, soft, tender, loving, caring. But there's a whole other side of God that we have to be able to remember. There is a side of God that says, I am righteous and holy and just. And he demands obedience. 
not to get to heaven, he just demands obedience. Just as any government would. When you're driving down the street and you decide to drive three times the speed limit, and you go past a police officer, that police officer is not going to say, oh, well, you just had the grace to do whatever you want. They're going to turn on their blue lights, and, and at that speed, they're going to put you in jail. <laughs> you know, three times the speed limit, they're going to put you in jail. You know, but even if you're going a certain amount over the speed limit, they're going to pull you over, and they're going to give you a piece of paper that says you owe, us, you owe the government money for violating our rules. God is the same way. He demands obedience because he is God. Not because we're trying to please him, not because we're trying to get into heaven, but because we are, he says, these are my rules. And John says, I've come to fulfill. He says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, and the crooked paths shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is part of what's coming when everything is going to be made smooth. But it's also in, our, in the way of a symbol. How many of us had hills and mountains and valleys when we, before we came to God that had to be accomplished? Now, it's kind of amazing when you walk through life and you get ready and you're facing a trial and a tribulation. And then we're, on the, we're on the side where we're facing that tribulation. How often does that, that uh, trial look like a very large mountain? It looks like a wall that's a thousand feet tall. It looks like it's inscalable. It's going to be impossible. And you put your trust in God. And you get to the other side of that trial and you look back on it. And you go, that was what was bothering me. That little problem had me really upset and struggling. It tells us in Revelation that people will look upon Satan at the white throne and look at him and said, that is what terrified us, terrified nations. You know, it's kind of an interesting thought. Satan, when we see him, is not going to look as terrible and horrible as he makes himself look out. And most people will immediately go, Wizard of Oz behind the, behind the, the, the wall. You know, he's putting on this show that he's the great. Satan is putting on a show that he is the great. He is the most powerful out there, and he scares people because of it, but he really has no power. We talk about this all the time. He's on a leash. He can do nothing that God does not allow him to do. And people go, well, why does God allow him to do so much? So that we can get tested. <laughs> Will we trust God? All of our tests are really to determine, do we trust God? When God says that we have power, he will put us in a place where we have to depend on his power. When he tells us to love people, he's going to put people in your life that are easy to love or hard to love. And if it's really a test, they're going to be hard to love. And the more you've learned to love, the harder the people are that he's going to put in your life to, to love. You know, he's teaching us to be faithful in forgiveness. How do we learn to forgive? It's not by having all kinds of people around us that don't need to be forgiven. He puts people around us that we need to forgive. And how many of us have somebody in our life that we have to forgive all the time? <laughs> they're trying our forgiveness you know, quotient. Because they're, every time they turn around, they're doing something that's irritating us. And that needs to be forgiven. There's somebody around us that God is wanting us to love, and he says, well, I'm going to make sure that they're hard to love. 
God is putting all these things in there, and from the one side, they look like they're hard problems to get over. But you get over that one, and God shows you that there's another mountain on the other side of it to go over to. So as we're learning and growing, God always puts things in our life to say, do you trust me? Do you trust my word? <clears throat> in the 1850s, we had the introduction of the evolution tree, uh, theory. All of a sudden, the churches struggled to believe Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, that God created the heavens and the earth in, in six days and rested on the seventh. And they struggled. Scientists are all saying that this isn't true, that God's word is not true, and they started struggling, trying to figure out how they could make the two meet instead of God's word is true, believe his word, and science will be tr proven out. And now we're seeing that the evolution theory is falling apart by true science. They still want to teach it. They still want to believe it. But it has got so many holes in it. It looks like it makes a sponge or, or a slice of Swiss cheese look like it's completely full. All right? It's got tons of holes in it. Do we trust God even when everything in, we see and hear says it's not true? We need to trust his word and trust God. Lean on him, not your own understanding, not the world's understanding. Trust him because he is going to be true. He will be proven true. You know, it used to be that nobody believed that there was a King David in Israel. They go, we've never found any evidence of King David ever existed. He's the, he's the King Arthur of, of Israel. You know, mythical, mythical conglomeration of all the kings. And then in around 1950, they found all kinds of archaeological evidence of King David. And then they found archaeological evidence of King Solomon. And I go, whoa, the Bible was true. Be patient. If you have anything where the Bible seems to not be accurate and true, be patient. God will prove it out in the long run. His word is true. And I've said it over and over. If there's anything in God's word that's not true... We cannot believe it. Because if there's anything in it that's not true, then I, then I have to suffer with what do I believe, what don't I believe, and then I start being, the, being my God picking what's right and what's wrong. It all has to be true or it's a worthless book. And that is something that you're not hearing in a lot of, these, a lot of teachings anymore. You know, and it's got to be. What are you going to put your life on if it's not true? There are so many churches out there that don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in Jesus, and call themselves Christian. And it's like, what are you believing? If you're a Christ follower, which Christian is, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, how can you be a Christ follower? Now, if you're not believing his word, what are you standing on? And this is the sad thing. In our day and age, we've got a lot of people that aren't standing on God's word. It is funny when you hear people go, you know, well, this is in the Bible. Now, uh, we've talked about this before. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Great, great Western, Western idea, but not in the Bible. Now, it's a pretty good, good idea to stay clean and, <laughs> and healthy, but it's not a scriptural, scriptural thing. We need to make sure that what we're looking at is in the scriptures. Make sure that what we're standing on is scriptural. And it says that um, all flesh, in verse 6, shall know the salvation of now, that doesn't sound like a very radical statement to us in our day. 
But when John the Baptist was preaching this to the Jewish people, this was radical. The rabbis taught that Gentiles were born to feed the fires of hell. They were, not, they were not part of God's kingdom. They were not part of God's people. They were just the ones who were unfortunate enough to be born as non-Jews, and they were headed to hell. No matter what they did, they were headed to hell. John is saying that salvation was going to be known by all. That would be something they would look at and say, what are you talking about, John? <laughs> don't you know, John, that uh, you know, those Gentiles don't God? Now, that is not taught in the Old Testament. Don't, you know, it's not taught that way. Through the first five books of the Pentateuch, over and over, God says, this is how you worship in me, and it is for you and for all people. God told the Jews that they were to invite all people to worship him. And yet, with each passing generation, they made it harder and harder and harder for Gentiles to worship. Even so far as to the point of right now, in John the Baptist and Jesus' day, they had a great big sign up in the outside of the court of the Gentiles saying, only Jews beyond this, this point on pain of death. If you crossed into the place where you could worship God, you were executed. That was how far they had gotten by this time. And John is saying, God wants to show his salvation to everyone, including all those Gentiles that you don't want to see him saving. How many times do we as Christians have radical beliefs to the world? You know, in our day and age, we're radical enough to believe that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we believe he's the truth. And that what he says is true. What does our world say? There is no truth. They will absolutely say there is no absolute truth. Which is kind of funny to me. I've always thought that was funny when I took meet these people that would tell me there's, there's no absolute truth. You know, uh, and I loved it in college. It was so much fun. Take these college brains that say there were no absolute truth and I'm going, is that an absolute statement? Or is that an absolute truth? You know, the very fact that they say there is no absolute truth says that they don't, that that they don't believe that there is no absolute truth. You know, but in our world, we have people all the time that will say diametrically opposed statements in the same conversation, oftentimes in the same sentence, because they do not have something to stand on. They do not have truth to stand on. John is saying that God is going to send salvation, and his, rep- and his statement was, that they were to be baptized into repentance. Now, he was not saying that baptism was what was saving you. He was saying the repentance is what's, what led you to salvation. Because baptism was just a sign. It's still just a sign. Now, as Baptists, we will say this, you know, that baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And that is true. For the Jews, the Jews practice baptism. I don't know if you realize this. Baptism is not a Christian thing. Many religions practice baptism, including the Jews. And it has always meant the same thing in every single religion. You die to some way of thinking, and you're resurrected to a new way of thinking. And all in the New Testament we read, you know, oftentimes the Jews would say, whose baptism were you baptized unto? 
Who are you listening to? Who is the teacher that you have agreed to live by their teaching? And that's what the Jews looked at it. When you were baptized, you were saying, I'm no longer living according to, and, and you know, for them, you know, Rabbi Ben Joseph, I'm now following Rabbi Ben Simon. And I'm making up names. Don't try to look them up. <laughs> you know, I'm giving up on the old teacher's way and I'm coming to a new teacher's way. John was saying, I'm teaching you and my teaching is repentance. Again, a radical thought for them. How did the Jew get to make it into heaven? Well, they went to Yom Kippur and they offered their sacrifice on Yom Kippur and they put their and the priest put his hands on the on the on the lamb that was and they laid the sins of the nation on the lamb that lamb was slain and they were going to go to heaven for a year it was all tradition it was all formal ceremony they would come for the passover and celebrate the passover lamb the celebration of death passing over they would do the seven seven jewish feasts every year and they would practice that. They would go to the synagogue every, every Saturday. They would listen to the Pentateuch being read every year by going to, going to the synagogue every Saturday. They'd hear the prophets read on a five-year cycle. That was, their, that was what got them into heaven. They went to synagogue and they practiced the sacrifices. And as long as you did all those works, you were okay. Again, not what the Bible taught, not even what the Old Testament taught. And John comes along and says, all your formalism, all your practices are not what it takes to get to heaven. You must repent. And that's just the first step of it. Don't get me wrong. That's not, you know, but you know, this is for us. First thing for us as a Christian to be saved, you have to first recognize that you're lost. <laughs> I have sins that deserve punishment. Then I confess or repent my sins. God, I, am, I have made sins. I'm sorry. But what is repentance? Repentance is what leads to the next part that he talks about, creating fruit. Repentance is when I turn from my sins and I turn to God and start serving God. People will go, well, I got saved. Well, you're still living in your, in your, in your sinful lifestyle. Now, I'm not going to say we're perfect. We'll never be perfect. But... If I'm going out and saying, God, I'm sorry for what I'm doing, and then tomorrow I'm going right back out, and, and even when I'm saying, God, forgive me, I'm planning to go out and do the same sin again, then I have to really look at it and say, have I repented? Have I turned away? Do I know God? Now, to fall into that same sin, and I, I, this is a different thing. I, I, I confess my sin, and I go out, and the next thing I know, I'm committing that sin again. That's a different story. But I go out, and I just know. I know this sin has got me. I'm not, I know that I'm going to fall for, fall for it again. We need to look. And, and John is saying your repentance is going to bring fruit. And this is something that has been very much in, in the scriptures. Uh, Hosea tells us that we are to turn to the Lord in 14.2. Matthew 3.2, we are told to repent. Uh, Acts 5.19 says, commit, uh, commit yourself to Christ. We're told in, in uh, Ephesians 6, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, when we repent, when we turn to Christ and we transfer our control of our life to our Master, He will produce fruit. And this fruit is not what gets us into heaven. 
We've talked about this many times. Just because I do good things because he is living in me, doing work in me, does not mean I've earned heaven. All I'm doing is being plugged into the vine, which is Jesus Christ, and his life is pumping through me, and I'm producing fruit because he is being the life that is bringing fruit forth. And that fruit is going to be people being saved. It will be love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, all the different parts of the spirit of spiritual fruit that we are able to expand to others and show that people will say, you are different. When, for those of us who are saved, do you remember when you got saved? Is, did people know that you had been saved? Did they know that you had changed? It's fun to meet somebody and you know that they have changed. It, it, you can just look at some people and they've gotten saved and you look at them and go, something's different. And they can tell you their testimony. I accepted Jesus. He is now my Lord and Savior. He wants to be our Savior, but more importantly, he must be Lord. If you're going to produce fruit, he must be Lord. And that means master. And for those of us in America, we don't like the idea of having a Lord and master. We are free, independent people that don't want anybody to tell us what to do at all. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Because what has our battle all this last year in 2020 been? Governors and, and, and mayors and people trying to tell us what to do. You must do this. And how much have people bristled, including myself? You're going to tell me what to do in my day-to-day -day life. We don't like it. And yet, we as Christians are supposed to be turning our life over to God so that God will tell us what to do. We need to learn that humility and subjection and submission to authority to say, I am just going to do what I'm told. You know, and I can remember I had a hard time wearing a mask anywhere. Then I listened to a pastor who says, have you made a god of your freedom not to wear a mask? And it kind of hit me between the eyes. Like, yeah, there's really nothing in the Bible that says you shall not wear a mask. <laughs> so I'm going, okay, I guess maybe I'm not going to wear it all the time. I still don't like wearing them. I still don't believe in them that much. But I also have no reason when told to wear a mask, like when I'm at work, that I have to wear my mask. So now I wear my mask at work because that is what I was told to do. And in about two weeks, I guess I'll have to start wearing a mask anytime I'm out in public <laughs> because I know this president has already said he's going to mandate it. But, you know, we need to be able to say, are we going to be submitted or are we going to hold on to my rights, my desires? And this is where we're going to be facing a lot of hard decisions in, time, in the near future. As long as people are not telling us to do something that is against the Bible, then we need to be obedient to the authorities. And I know that's hard to say. I know that I'm going to struggle very much this next year following that very statement I just said. And I've told you all, most of the time when I'm preaching, I'm preaching at me more than I preach at anybody else in this group. It is going to be hard to stay submitted. But that is really what we're looking at when we're looking at, are we followers of God? Are we truly obedient to him? John points out a couple of things, and they, go, they ask him some specific questions. Well, how do we show this fruit? 
And his first one was to the general public. He goes, if you have two coats, give one away. If you have more food than you need, give to the poor. Help the needy. And, you know, we have, this, again, in America, we have a hard time with that at times. You know, they can just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know, if they just worked a little harder, they, would, they, wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have any problems. And you know what? I kind of understand that on one side of it. But, you, but at the same time, the Bible tells us to care for those who need help. Now, I am all for not helping those who can go out and help themselves. <laughs> Part of our welfare system in America designed to produce laziness. You know, the lazier you are, the more you're out of work, the more money you get. And there's no incentive to go out and work. In God's economy, how did he feed the, feed the poor? He told the landowners, don't cut the corners of your field. Don't go back and pick up any, any, heart, any fruit, that, fruit that fell. Why? So that the poor could get up out of their houses and go pick their own food. God knows that work is important. Now, if you have somebody who cannot work, I mean, they are crippled, they cannot work, then we need to do everything we can to help them. But if somebody can work, we need, they need to be encouraged to go out and do something. Do something to help themselves. And that was God's plan. God created us to work. Most people believe that work was part of the curse. Adam and Eve were created, and what, was, what were they made? The gardeners of Eden. Now, I've said many times, I do not know how hard it was to garden in a per perfect uh, garden. I probably could have gardened Eden. <laughs> been a gardener in Eden, and I have a black thumb. All right. Uh, when I was in Bible college, my roommate asked me to water his plants uh, on the weekend that he was away. I watered them once, and they died. I don't, I don't touch plants. <laughs> plants and I do not get along. <laughs> but I think even I could have been a gardener in Eden because it was perfect garden. It wasn't anything that had to be done. Now, plant a tree or a bush someplace. Uh, who knows what, they, what it was, but work was part of what we were created to do. And God says we need work. This is why when we picture heaven, heaven is not going to be sitting around on clouds plucking harps. It's going to be some kind of work. And I don't know about you, but I have been very fortunate in my life to be able to do work that I enjoy doing. And it's a statement that goes, if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. And for the most part, I've had jobs that I enjoy doing. Now, does that mean I always like going to jo the job? Not necessarily. I love being a pastor. I like being here and teaching everything. Does that mean that every single time I come up here, I have a great, wonderful day and it's all perfect? No. There's times when it's like, okay, I'm going to work. But most of the time, it's, oh, I get to go to work. You know, I, I love it because it's like I get to now go do the job that I want. I spend 40 hours a week earning a living and the other 20 to 30 hours a week doing what I love to do. And it's a wonderful thing. And when we get to heaven, we're going to get to do whatever it is that God has made us perfectly capable of doing. And it may surprise us what God says we're perfectly capable of doing when we get to heaven. But I believe we're going to work in heaven. When we reread the scriptures of heaven, there seems to be work. There's trade. There's activities going on. And you go, well, that's going to kind of be kind of hard. What? You know, there are people who love to do certain jobs that you can't stand to do. Now, I kind of think of Loretta all the time, that she hated weeds so much, and it was her pleasure and joy to pick up the weeds. Most of us look like, you want me to weed? 
you know, I have to take those weeds out of the ground. Yeah. But I was a manager for a long time. I would find things that people liked doing, and I would try to put them in the things they liked doing. And they would usually get the job done very well because they were doing something they enjoyed doing. When we get to heaven, God's got enough people up there. He's going to have the perfect job for every single person to do, and we'll enjoy doing it. Why did God produce a day of rest called the Sabbath? Well, a lot of people are going, well, they worked so hard to, they needed to rest. They were gardening a perfect, perfect garden. There was not a whole lot of hard work there. If you've been in the Truth Project, Dale Tackett said he really believes, and I agree with him when he said it, he had to tell them it's time to stop playing and rest and pay attention to me. They were having so much fun doing what God had created them to do that he said, one day in seven, you're going to stop and focus on me completely. And this is a discussion I've had with various people over the years. They go, well, on my day of rest, I work in the garden. I do this. I do that. God still says, stop even the fun things and pay attention to him. Do we have a day that we pay attention to God for the day? And a lot of people go, well, it's Sunday. Well, I'll make a case that very few of us are worshiping God all day Sunday like we used to. Most of us can't get, wait to get out of this room to go watch our sports or to do our hobbies or to do whatever it is. And you poor wives have to go home and cook dinner for many times. Not as much in today's world as it used to be, but you know, Sunday used to be a very hard day for many people, especially the wives. The men got to rest all day. The wife went home after church, cooked dinner, just the dishes and did a very hard days of work and didn't get a day of rest. My question is for us, what day do you actually rest and focus on God. For me, it's definitely not Sunday. <laughs> and being bivocational, it's hard for me to get a full day's rest. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Tomorrow, I don't have to go to my other job. <laughs> I get nine days off a year that are actual days off if they don't fall on the same day that I have to work at the church. But again, I don't look at the church as being work, but it's still work. It's still effort. It's still doing something that's not focused completely and 100% on God. He told the publicans, and in case you don't know the term publican, that's tax collectors. <laughs> he told the publicans, don't take more taxes than you're supposed to take. Now, the publicans, the way their system worked, and we, we don't like tax collectors even in our day. They really didn't like them back then. To, to be a tax collector, you talked to the government and you said, how much money do you need and how much money am I going to give you? And they would tell you, well, we want uh, $100,000 for you in this next year. You went out and you collected $200,000 from the people. You gave $100,000 to the government and you kept $100,000. And you had the military helping you collect the money that people didn't want to give. That's how the publicans made all their, all their money. They would collect a whole bunch of money and only give what they needed to give to the government. And he's saying, to you publicans, you tax collectors, collect just what you're supposed to collect, nothing more. The soldier said, what do we do? And he says, don't do violence. Oh, in that day and age, if they wanted something, they took it. They were a soldier. It's not even so much in their day and age. And it's even other places now, when there's wartime, you know, one of the things that, especially in the American military, they had to keep their men from taking from the farms and villages when they went through because they go, we're not like the rest of the militaries. We are going to be 
professional and respectful. Does that mean nobody ever took anything? No, <laughs> but they weren't supposed to. Many armies still to this day, they go through a, through a place and they just rape and ravage the village because that's what they do. And he told, the, he told the soldiers, don't do that. Be content with your wage. What does it boil down to on this is being content. Our problems come when we're not content. I want more than what God has put on my plate. I want more than I probably even need. And that's what he was talking about. If you've got two cloaks, you don't need two cloaks. You can't wear more than one. And so... Uh, how many of us in our closets have clothes that we haven't worn in a year, two years, three years? Sometimes they're there in case we get bigger. Sometimes they're there in case we ever get smaller again. But we know we're not wearing them. <laughs> and yet they sit in a closet and just sit there. Uh, when I first moved here, I had a very heavy winter coat. And it stayed in there just in case it got cold enough for me to wear it. One thing about it around here, it doesn't get cold enough for me to barely wear a jacket, period. So I finally gave it away. Yeah, it sat in the closet for three years. I had never worn it. I gave it to somebody who was always cold. That poor, that poor guy was about as big as me, and he was always cold. And I said, here, have a, have a jacket that might keep you warm. This jacket is good for minus 30 degrees. You should be able to wear this and stay warm all the time. Because it was never going to be worn by me here in Kingman <laughs> and, and chloride. Uh, but are we looking at saying, what can we give? What can we help? And again, we're not doing it to earn salvation. We're not doing it to earn heaven. We're doing it to just be able to bless people and show God that we love and care for him. So as we look at this message of John, it's radical. He's saying ceremony isn't what it's going to do. It Good works is not going to do it. For the Jew, they gave they gave people money all over the place because it was points toward heaven as far as they were concerned you know i'm gonna god said give give alms to the people here they they, they would keep pockets full of coins so they could drop small coins into everybody's cup as they walked past just because there was a point toward heaven every time they did it in their mind every time i go and offer a sacrifice it's a point toward heaven every time i go to the synagogue it's a point toward heaven Unfortunately, for many of us as Christians, we think the same way. Sunday morning, I'm going to church, putting, putting my little check mark on God's, God's uh, mark. I went to church. See, God, you, know, you owe me something. I went to church. God, I read my Bible every day this week. You owe me something. God, I said a few prayers for people. You owe me something. And we need to make sure, and on one side we know there's nothing to it, but how many times do we actually do things thinking we're doing something for God's pleasure, you know, that is going to make God look good, well on us? We need to make sure that we're not doing that. If you're doing those things for just those reasons, stop doing them. You're doing them for the wrong reason. We're doing it to show God that we love and care for him. And that's so important. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to bless it. Lord, if there's anybody that listens that doesn't know you today, we ask that today they will accept you as their Lord and Savior. They will confess that they are a sinner, that they need to know you, and that you're, and they will repent from their sin and turn to you as their Lord and Savior and accept your gift of salvation. And we just thank you. Lord, for those of us who know you now, we ask that you will help us 
follow you better in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.